Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 15. Uh, we're starting in verse 1. As we continue in our study of Judges, um, we are again this morning in the uh, account of Samson. And um, I'm just, I'll try to do a little bit of a recap when we get into the sermon time, just because I was gone last week. So just as a reminder, just a refresher for where we're at. Uh, but as you're turning there, um, I want to I just bring your attention for those of you who were alive in the 60s back to a group called Simon Garfunkel. Um, they were uh, creating and producing hits that, were, that I think are still popular today. Um, so anybody who's younger in the in the crowd today uh, might know a group called Disturbed that did a version of The Sound of Silence. That's a Simon and Garfunkel song. Um, so they were a folk rock duo um, with poetic lyrics and incredible harmonies. You know, oftentimes it would just be the two of them singing and one person playing a guitar and, but but musically just phenomenal. Um, near the end of the decade of the 60s, when they were, re I mean, they were really at a, a height in their popularity. Um, they had a falling out that brought about the end of the group. And so in July of 1970, they performed their last concert together. Now, the Simon, it was Paul Simon, he went on to have a, a really successful solo career um, and did that for decades and played his last concert in September of 2018. And many of the fans had hoped that they, they'd they had this falling out and, and the, like the, Paul Simon held a grudge against Art Garfunkel for all that time. And many of his fans had hoped that he might invite Art Garfunkel to perform with him and do some of those old songs in that last concert that he gave in September of 2018. Uh, but he did not do that. And he's, so he, at that point, had held a grudge for 48 years. Now, the only person who wants this broken relationship to continue is Paul Simon, because Art Garfunkel has mentioned that he would have loved to have begun, you know, to do music again with him. And the fans all wanted the two of them to reconcile, but Paul Simon was unwilling to. That's a long time to hold a grudge against somebody. Um, and grudges are unhealthy just overall. But they're grounded also in, I think, an unhealthy desire for revenge. Samson was a man who was very preoccupied and consumed with getting revenge on those who he thought had wronged him. And we see some things, we're going we're gonna to look at the account today, and we're going to see some things that, he, that we can see in him that we need to avoid in our own lives, um, even though it's in the context of what God is working out as he's confronting. We've talked about how God, in, in chapter 14, it said that God was looking for a reason to confront, or an opportunity to confront the Philistines. In the midst of what God is doing, 
there are things that we see in Samson's life that we need to avoid as well. So if you have Judges 15 open, uh, we're going to look at our text today, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. If you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Judges 15, verses 1 to 8. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etham. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that we're going to study today for your word that you've revealed to us. Um, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would fill us and guide us, and, um, and he would open our hearts and our minds to understand the depth of your word here. Um, as we look at Samson and we look at his his need in his, in his own mind for revenge on his enemies, um, Lord, let us be able to see and view uh, this idea of revenge from a biblical lens so that we're approaching it in our own lives the way that you would have us do that would be honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. So just as a quick recap, um, the text that we dealt with before I was gone last week uh, was the end of chapter 14, the second half of chapter 14. And in that, Samson, in chapter 14, Samson finds a Philistine woman he wants to marry. And um, he, as soon as, his parents didn't want him to marry her because she was a foreigner. And God had told his people not to marry outside of the nation. um, And yet, he was insistent that he marry this girl, and the, the moment everything got started with the seven-day feast for, for their marriage, things went bad. Um, she betrayed him because she was threatened, and so Samson's already on, uh, on this path of, of problems and, and um, trouble, and so Samson is in the midst of, uh, in chapter 14, Samson is dealing with 
revenge already because he's been wronged by the Philistines who threatened his wife. Um, he leaves, after, after all of that stuff, he leaves and he goes and he stays at his father's house. And so come to chapter 15 where we're at today, he's, his, his anger has subsided and he decides to head back to go visit. Okay, so that's where that kind of sets us up for where we're at today, uh, where our first verse today says later on at the time of the wheat harvest, he took a young goat and went to visit his wife. Okay, so the first point in your notes is Samson's revenge. We're talking about June here because uh, the harvest was usually at that time in, or the harvest in that part of the world was usually around early June. So we're talking summertime. Um, Samson's anger has now uh, subsided. He was angry with the Philistines who cheated him. He was angry at them for threatening his wife. He was angry at his, I, I think he was angry at his wife for betraying him. Um, but now that his anger has subsided, he decides to go back and visit. And he takes kind of an offering as a, as a gift. He takes a young goat and he goes to visit his wife. Now, for you and I, that might sound strange that somebody would be married to somebody and they would live in separate places. Um, but there was a type of marriage at the time called a Bina type, or it was also sometimes called a visit type. That's the first point in your notes, I think. Um, a Bina type of marriage, in those cases, a, a, a wife would remain in her father's household and the husband would visit periodically. Um, so it could have been a situation like that where Samson was um, married, but she stayed at her father's house and he would visit um, every once in a while. That seems like to us strange, um, like not a really good situation, like a, a good arrangement for your marriage, but we need to put ourselves in the context of the time um, you've got a Philistine woman that Samson has married the Samson's parents were already not approve not approving of that decision to marry her she's a she's a person who God warned not her specifically but God had warned his people not to marry outside of the nation of Israel because and the reason for that was because the nations around them the nations in Canaan that weren't driven out they worshiped other gods, and God warned his people, if you marry the, uh, outside of the nation of Israel and you marry people from those nations, they will, they will lure you into worshiping their gods, and they'll lure you away from me. And so God had warned his people not to do that. So if you've got someone who's married a Philistine woman, it might be better in that context that you're not bringing her home to live uh, usually you would live either in your father's household or you might build a little um, uh, a little extension to the house where that was your house, but usually you lived near the husband's family. It might not be a great I idea to bring a Philistine woman who's already betrayed him once by, by coaxing them to give him the answer to the riddle and then giving the answer to the people who threatened her might not be a good idea to bring her and all of her customs and all of her mindset that is anti what God had told his people into the household. And so I, I don't know if it was this type of marriage, but that was a, a thing that was done at the time. 
some. And so some, some commentators have thought that maybe that's what was going on here. Um, now, because it was the time of the wheat harvest, the wheat would be dry. So when Samson gets there, we, we're told that it's wheat harvest time. He gets there, he finds out that his father-in-law gave his wife to another person to be married to another person because he thought Samson was so angry that he thoroughly hated her. So Samson gets there and he finds this out, and when he, when he finds it out, like any normal person would be angry, he was angry. And we've talked about how Samson has an issue with anger, and we've been seeing that he has an issue with getting revenge when he's been wronged, and so he would have known how to bring a very quick result that would cause suffering for the Philistine because it's wheat harvest time, the wheat is dry, he could very easily destroy their crop. So he gathers um, all the supplies that he needs so that he can just completely destroy their crop. Now this is something, ruining the crops of another nation so that they're crippled is something that the Israelites are familiar with because if you remember from chapter 6 in Judges when we were talking about Gideon, that's what the Midianites were doing to the Israelites year after year. They'd come sweeping in when it was harvest time and they would just destroy all of their crops so they had no food. It's a typical military strategy to cut off supplies to those who are, you're fighting against. And so, uh, so that part of it was very typical. Samson's method, however, of accomplishing that, not so typical. Um, he t takes the takes 300 foxes, he ties their tails together so they're in pairs, he attaches a torch to them, lights the torch, and sends them through the grain fields. I, I can't imagine any of history's best generals when they're contemplating how to make their next attack saying, where can we get our hands on some foxes? You know, like, so the strategy is very typical, the method, anything but typical. But it's another situation where God displays his glory and his power and remember, God is using this and the other situations that we've read about. He's using this as a way of confronting the Philistines. He's certainly, this is not just Samson just acting. God is certainly a part of this because it would have been, I think, a difficult thing for one man to catch 300 foxes. Some, some translations say jackals. I've, I've read that it's probably, it's probably more, that's probably more uh, accurate with what, what uh, would be available, available in that part of the world at the time. Um, but it'd be hard for one man to catch that many, well, just wild animals running around. That's a lot, 300. Um, yeah, I want you to take note of that, that number 300 because I, I, the 300 foxes in this task, maybe there may be some connection with Gideon's account where Gideon only had 300 men that served under him, and they destroyed an enemy, again, that year after year came in and would wipe out their crops. And so when you have 32,000 men available, like at the time of Gideon, and you, God says, no, you're only taking 300, that is a very unorthodox way to engage in a battle, engage an enemy that's countless. The enemy, I think, 
if I remember correctly, the, the Midianites, their army was, I think, 135,000 men, and God takes 300 of Gideon's men, and he, and he destroys this, this army. And using 300 foxes to wreak havoc on the Philistines' crops, crops that they depend on for food, is also a very unorthodox way of doing this. But who said God works in ordinary ways, right? Judges is example after example after example of God working in, thing, in ways that are unorthodox. It's one thing after another of God doing things where people are like, it's not how I would have done it probably. But that's how God keeps us depending upon him and showing us his glory that he can do anything in any way that he wants, even though it looks to us to be a losing battle maybe. All right, the second point in your notes that we're going to look at is the strategy of Samson's revenge. So he's, he's decided to get revenge on them. We see what he's done. But I want to look at, uh, at what he does in a little more detail because I want you to notice what he destroyed. It says that he burned up their grain, their vineyards, and their olive groves. That's pretty much everything. Like those are the staples of the, of the time and the location of the world. You, you had, most of the people were farmers of some sort. You had grain that you planted. You had vineyards that you, you grain for, for bread, um, vineyards for the grapes or, or wine, and olive, gro olive groves for, uh, not just for, cooking purposes, but also religious purposes. They used olive oil to anoint things. And so, so, but those are the staples. So there are two things I want you to take note of here. The first is that I want you to take note of how serious this type of thing was in ancient times, especially in the Israelite culture. Exodus 22.6, you can write that reference down. Exodus 22.6. God said, if a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain and standing grain or the whole grain or the whole field, God told his people, the one who started the fire must make restitution. So this was a serious thing to destroy somebody's food source. God views that so serious that the one who who was responsible for destroying it had to provide what was needed for those people to have what they what were basic necessities for food however in our situation here he uses samson to destroy that food source of the philistines as a strategic battle tactic he's being strategic militarily here and he leads Samson as Samson is seeking revenge. He leads Samson, and God is using Samson's weaknesses. We talked, we've talked about before how Samson was not your typical judge. He had a lot of weaknesses, but God was using those weaknesses to get into the, into the Philistine culture and to confront them and to destroy them. And so here's something. Revenge is not a good thing, which we're going to get into some later. It's not a good thing, but God is using Samson's weaknesses as a strategic battle tactic here 
and he command and he leads him to destroy their food source. So that's the first thing. How serious of a thing that was. It cuts off the supplies of what is necessary for living. But the second thing that I want you to take note of is we need to remember that we didn't have, like they didn't have thousands of acres of of grain or whatever like we do today. So if you if in your mind you're thinking of the cornfields around us and sending 300 foxes through to destroy it, it's not like they could just say, well, that was just that 40 acres and we've got, you know, 700 other acres of stuff that we could harvest. And they didn't have grocery stores that they could just run to to get the supplies they needed. So to destroy this was to destroy everything that they had. It was a significant destruction of not just their food source, but their livelihood as well. But there's something even deeper here that I want you to take note of because the Philistines, they, they weren't people who worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. They, wa- they worshipped a God named Dagon. Um, I mean, they had some other gods, too, but the, the scripture is talking and even tells us that the Philistines that were interacting with God's people here were oppressing God's people here. Their, their god that they worshipped was Dagon. Dagon was not a weather god like the god Baal that we've talked about. So they didn't pray to him hoping he would bring rain that would allow the crops to grow like the like the other some of the other Canaanite um, groups and religions um, he was Dagon was um, considered to be a god of prosperity he was considered to be a god of prosperity but prosperity would certainly be an umbrella that is like an overarching thing that underneath that umbrella would come a bountiful harvest right would need a bountiful harvest to be that would be one of the components of allowing a, um, a nation to be prosperous and so this is the God that they worshipped and I think similar to the account of the plagues and the exodus I think God has used his servant here to completely destroy what would be their their harvest, which, you know, if it was ready to be harvested and everything was going okay, would have been what they needed to survive. God is using his servant to destroy this this bounty for the to prove that he's sovereign over all things. Okay? We saw we see that in the plagues. The plagues were things that the Egyptians looked at as either gods or things that were results of their God showing blessing on them. Okay, And God attacked all of those, destroyed all of those, proved his sovereignty over all of those. And here, Dagon is not the one that brings the, the harvest, but he brings prosperity 
and God, I think, I think what we see here is something similar going on where God is proving that he is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over all creation. He's sovereign over all people. And he's sovereign over anyone or anything that people might make a God to worship. And God is sovereign over the power that the Philistines believed Dagon had as well. And so, it's a military strategy, but I think also a statement that the Lord is making, much like he did with the Israelites, or with the Egyptians during the Exodus. All right, point number three. Let's take a look at a biblical view of revenge. Now, remember, I, I, I'm, I'm aware that God, is, that God is using this. This is all the things that Samson is going to end up, the, the killing of the 30 men to steal the garments to pay back for the riddle, um, the killing of the men with the jawbone of a donkey, um, this here, later on we'll get into some other things that he's going to do. Like, those are all parts of God's, strategy to confront them and destroy them and I and I understand that but at the same time revenge in general is not a good thing for us to seek out especially to be consumed with and we see in Samson a person who is totally consumed with it the text indicates that Samson and the Philistines went back and forth with retaliation for the offenses done to them first Going all the way back to chapter 14, first, the 30 companions at the, at the wedding feast threaten his wife and her household if, they, if she doesn't get the answer to the riddle. And so she pesters him and pesters him. And Samson, that's one of his big weaknesses. He just can't handle somebody who won't give up. And so he gives her the answer. She gives it to the Philistines. They get it right. Samson then has to pay the 30 uh, sets of clothes to them um, and in his anger he goes to another city and he kills 30 Philistines and he takes their clothes and, and, and then he gives them back but then we get into our text today and he goes to visit his wife after he settles down his father-in-law has given her to another man he gets angry and he sets their, field, their grain fields on fire and then they find out, they see that this is, the Philistines see that this has happened, and they, they inquire, who did this? And when they find out that it was Samson, and they find out that it was because of his wife being given to another man, they then go to his wife's house, and they burn her and her father in retaliation. And Samson then threatens to continue and continue and continue until his revenge is satisfied. And so the text just gives us this picture of this back and forth, back and forth. One person does something, they retaliate because they're angry, and then they retaliate again. What a picture of how sin and the need for personal revenge can just escalate out of control in our lives. 
I don't know if you know anybody who has this need for revenge in their life when they've been wronged. Um, but I've seen people that any anything done to them that they that they and usually their point of view is skewed. Anything they view as being an attack on them or being, you know, less than um, favorable to them, they they it just eats them up. They're consumed with with hatred toward those people. They're consumed with a desire for those people to get what they deserve. Um, they might not necessarily be people who would go to those links, but they're consumed in their heart and their mind with, I want them to suffer the way that they made me suffer. When we're wronged, Sometimes we think that the only justice is for that person to get that equal suffering. And that often becomes the most important thing that consumes our thoughts all the time. So what happens is that we place, when, when that's taking place in our life, what we're doing is we're placing, we're, we're putting ourselves and what we desire or our will, we're putting that right at the center of our life when God says I need to be the center of your life and we when we do this when we're consumed with this we're ignoring God and, and not listening to what God is trying to teach us and grow us and we're and we're consumed with this is what justice looks like in this situation the problem is that uh, we we don't think rationally we think and we process all things through that filter that brings justice to ourselves, and, and we are the ones who usually define what that looks like. We're just completely consumed with it. And that's the complete opposite of what God instructs us in Scripture. God, God understands and he, and he tries to teach us that that is that's unhealthy for us, it's dangerous for us, and we need to be doing the complete opposite of that. And so we need to be allowing God to handle those situations for us so that we can let go of them. So we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you have four things in your notes for this one. We're going to look at four, four things. This is why God wants us to allow him to handle uh, revenge and, and situations like this in our life. Number one, God's justice is always right. Our justice is, is thought up and, and produced and we figure out what it looks like within a mind that has fallen, it's corrupted with sin. God's justice is always right. Psalm 19.9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There's never a time that God brings about justice where it wasn't deserved. And there's never a time where God brings about justice where we say, that what that was a little harsh there's never a time that we can question because god is the only one who's thinking with an eternal uncorrupted mind god is the one who sets the standard of what is right and wrong and so his justice is based on those things our justice is based is created on a, in a mind that is corrupt and fallen because of sin and 
it is when we are when we are coming up with things that are not that don't line up with the way God would lay them out biblically, or we are not letting go of them and letting God have control of that, then we've already stepped into a, a place where we are not in a healthy place and we're not right. So God's justice is always right. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Number two, God doesn't want us to sin in our anger. Scripture does not say do not be angry. There are times when it is right and righteous to be angry. God displays anger at times. So it's not a sin to be angry, but what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26 is in your anger do not sin. Your anger should not cause you to move into some kind of sinful reaction. It's okay to be angry as long as it doesn't lead you into sin. Anger that leads into sin is anger that entangles and consumes and is unhealthy. Number three, God wants us to let go of it or to forgive people because when we forgive, it sets us free. God wants for, wants us to, I missed the word too, sorry. God wants us to forgive because forgiveness sets us free. To hold a grudge, you know, I talked about Paul Simon at the beginning. To hold a grudge allows us, uh, allows that to just sit in our heart. Um, and it just begins to fester, and it destroys us from the inside out. Um, in fact, the Hebrew word, um, it's not here, because this is New Testament, that's Greek, but the Hebrew word that we see in Scripture that, that um, is the concept of a grudge means to enmesh. So, like, you hold a grudge against them, and you think you're cutting yourself off from them because you don't want them to hurt you anymore, and what you're actually doing because you allow that to consume you, they actually become so much a part of you that you're actually enmeshed with them. And so God doesn't want you to be entangled like that. He wants you to be set free. Forgiveness is how that happens. Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If, if, we, if we can't forgive somebody, then we will be consumed with it for the rest of our lives. Number four, God wants you to allow him to exact his righteous judgment or justice. Romans 12, uh, we're going to look at 19 and we're going to look at 21. 19, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so God said, Paul is reminding the people that God says, you need to let God handle this so that you can just be freed and released from this, so that you're not burdened down with this and it's not consuming you. And then verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we, uh, when we feel like we have to get revenge and it consumes us, we are being overcome by evil. And Paul's instructions to them are, don't allow that to beat you. Don't allow that to, become, to overcome you, but you need to overcome it by demonstrating goodness, by being loving. And that's from the verse before, in verse 19, that's what Paul says, sorry, not now in, um, in the 
point before, number three, in the Colossians 3, that's how we overcome evil by being good. We forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. So God has set an example, and he's given us something that where it affects us, and we can understand the goodness of forgiveness, the blessings of forgiveness. All right, so let me wrap up here. Um, I understand, again, that Samson's situation here, his actions, are the things that God is using to confront the Philistines. So there's a purpose in all of this. But generally speaking, uh, seeking revenge is an unhealthy spiritual practice that affects things in our physical life as well. Um, Look at verse 8 in our text. It says, then he went down and he stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. Um, This verse, I think this verse is really sad. He went to stay in a cave by himself. He'd become a man who is caught between two worlds. The world he was born into and the world of which he so desperately wanted to be a part of. He was born into the Israelite people and culture, but he longed for all these things that God said, stay away from. He was caught in between those worlds because he shunned his family and his own people by running after this Philistine as if the grass in Philistia is greener than the grass in Israel. He, he isn't able to really go home and be a part of his people. Yet the Philistines have wronged him, and his insatiable desire to get revenge keeps him at odds with them as a whole. So he's caught in the middle, completely cut off from people on both sides, sitting in a cave alone. I just think it's a sad picture. It's it's all driven by his need avenge himself. Even the medical community in our world today recognizes the importance of forgiveness. Um, I just went real quickly to Mayo Clinic's website to look up something about some of this stuff. and they, th- This is what Mayo Clinic's website says about forgiving people that have harmed you. It brings you the, these things. Healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, fewer symptoms of depression, lower blood pressure, stronger immune system, improved heart health, and improved self-esteem. But you know what? Mayo Clinic's just telling people the same things that Christians have known for thousands of years. It's summed up in this verse in Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Did I put that in there or no? Okay, I didn't, sorry. Uh, Why don't you turn with me to Psalm 32? So I want you to be able to follow along. I apologize for not putting it up there. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5. says this, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now listen to this, verse 3, when I kept silent, 
my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the act of forgiveness, whether we're receiving it or giving it, is something that's so central to our lives as believers in Christ. And it is so healthy for us. When we, when we hold that grudge, or we, can, we, hold, we don't confess our sins to the Lord, and we, and we end up being at odds with either a person or group of people or with the Lord, it's like we're wasting away on the inside. But when we, when we enter into forgiveness in a relationship, whether we receive it or giving it, there is a freeing. And all these things that the Mayo Clinic said are all things that God designed for us. Not to be people who seek revenge, not to be people who are constantly at odds with each other or with the Lord, but to be people who are living according to the way the Lord instructed us to so that we can have not just eternal life waiting for us one day, but also experience eternal life on this earth. Jesus said, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know me, and that they know me in Jesus Christ who you have sent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you offer forgiveness, that you demonstrate forgiveness, that you call us to be people who forgive as well. Not to be people who seek revenge or to be consumed by it, but to be people who will seek reconciliation and healing and peace. You've done that with us. We wronged you. You did not you did not cut us off from you, but you pursued us and made a way for us to be forgiven, to be reconciled to you. And you call us to, after we've experienced the blessings of that, you call us now to extend that to others who have wronged us. Um, and it's not easy, but we know that it is something that you want to mature in us through the spirit that dwells in us. And so... Help us to at least surrender it to you so that you can do the, the work that needs to be done so that we can be people who will forgive and be released from that and not be consumed with it.